Welcome to episode 251 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Claire Firo. A big theme of this episode is the importance of advocating for yourself. It was something that came up over and over in Claire's story and something that I wanted to highlight and remind you how important it is to advocate for yourself and to reach out to others if you aren't getting the answer or the help that you need. Claire joined the Army a little later in life. She was 22, but she was looking for something different, and a friend shared about the career field of being an intelligence analyst. It ended up being the right career field for her, but unfortunately her career was plagued by injuries, and she ended up leaving the military about 18 months after joining. And so we talked about her time in the military and what her transition was like, and how she's still advocating for veterans today. Don't forget, you can always check out Women of the Military podcast on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern on Reese Across America Radio, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to Women in the Military podcast. I'm here for another interview. I'm excited to have Claire here with me. And so let's get started with this interview just by welcoming you here to the show. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? There's a lot of reasons I, you know, considered it from the time that I was six years old and watching Top Gun with my parents with a hand-drawn flight panel in front of me and a composition notebook. I don't even know if they make those anymore. But um, I had talked to a recruiter who told me it would be a waste and maybe look at ROTC. And then I ended up not doing terribly well in college. And so I kind of just ended up, I was, I think, 21, living with my parents, working as a hostess and not really sure what I wanted to do. And my sister said, well, you know, if you joined the military, they just pay you to do whatever they tell you to do until you can figure out what you actually want to do. And I was like, that that sounds like a great idea. And I had experienced uh, an unfortunate event around that period that made me really want to feel strong and proud of myself and confident and not helpless. Uh, and so around that same time, I had made a friend who was in Key West, which is where I grew up, um, for the Special Forces Dive School down there. And we got to talking and I mentioned that I was looking at potentially joining the military. And he said, you know, you'd be really good at being a 35 Mike. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. (laughs) And he said it was a human intelligence collector and essentially an interrogator, but also uh, running source ops. So convincing people while you're deployed to provide information um, and getting information out of people without them realizing it. Uh, And that very much appealed to me because I love speaking. And I talked to my recruiter and there was an availability. And then one day she called me and there was, and I joined up. That's awesome. I like that you looked into it and they were like, no, do ROTC. And you're like, wait, that wasn't a good option for me. I think my family was a little surprised that I went with the army. Uh, My dad was 20 plus years in the Coast Guard. My grandfather was actually one of the inaugural members of the Air Force uh, and had been part of the Army Air Corps before that. 
And uh, I kind of feel a little bit like Lieutenant Dan because I've had family in the military in the U.S. since the revolution. So it's, you know, a long, proud family history and something I grew up with. And Key West is an extremely military town. So I think all of us that lived there at least considered it on some level or another. But it wasn't really until I was, I think I officially joined at 22. Actually, it just hit uh, my 10 year anniversary last month of joining. So, which is horrible to think about. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. You're like, what just happened? So that's an interesting question because you said you have this background like with the Coast Guard and the Air Force, but then you joined the Army. So what led you to join the Army? Was it that friend who recommended the career field? Yeah, it was the friend and also at that time. So this is 2013. The army, the military in general, is incredibly overstrengthed. Uh, President Obama is talking about ending the war in Afghanistan, which usually results in reduction of troops. The Coast Guard said they could get me in, but it would be two years wait, and I didn't want to wait that long. The Navy was willing to take me uh, to be a nuke, but somebody referred to it as a SA box in terms of carriers. And I was like, that sounds terrible and not like something I want to join, which was a very, I think, hyperbolic explanation of it. But I haven't been in the Navy, so I don't actually know. But I decided to err on the side of caution. And I didn't really want to be stuck on a carrier um, all the time. Uh, Because I've had friends who did that and, you know, the um, amount of time you spend away from shore is just a lot. And at, you know, 22, I was thinking about eventually getting married, having a family, all that kind of stuff. And that just didn't seem conducive to that. Um, The Air Force never answered the door or my phone calls. (laughs) Uh, The Marine Corps was very excited to have me, but I just didn't think physically I was at that level. Um... And so the army just, it seemed like a good fit. It had, you know, the quickness of what I wanted. And the other thing was with being a 35 Mike human intelligence collector, uh, at that time, they were really pushing for us to also go to DLI after AIT. Uh, For those of you who don't know, DLI is the Defense Language Institute. It is one of the best language education centers in the world. And it's located out in Monterey, California. And so I also had to take something called the D-Lab, the Defense Language Aptitude Battery. I'm really impressed. I'm just pulling these <laughs> acronyms out. I didn't realize I still remembered these. But anyway, I took the test. And it's not something you can really study for. It's determining how well your brain picks out patterns and can pick up language cues. And I scored a 140. And I didn't know what that meant. And I went to the recruiters. And I'm like, I don't know if I did well. I got I got a 140. And he goes, it doesn't go that high. And I was like, uh, it actually does. Um, there was somebody in my class who scored higher than I did. They had a 141. And I was so mad about it. But between my score in the D-Lab and getting the slot for 35, Mike, it just, the army just really felt like the right fit. Yeah. Yeah. I took the D-Lab and it's like weird sounds and you're supposed to hear something that's a pattern and I was just like uh I nothing I don't even know what my score maybe they didn't tell me because they were like you you you're just not gonna do that career field see I enjoyed it I like puzzles 
Yeah. No, it, it was the perfect fit for you. I love that the recruiter's like, it doesn't go that high. You're like, no, it does. It, it does. <laughs> it actually goes a little higher. So. I think it goes up to like 160 or 170, but I don't think it's actually possible to max it. Uh, okay. But you're pretty high. I, I I try not to toot my own horn about a lot of things, but I'm real proud of that one. <laughs> Uh, to, to give you an idea, most of the people who also qualified for languages got somewhere between like 100 and 120, um, which are all really incredibly high scores uh, to get the romance languages. So Spanish, French, Italian, I think is like a 90 and then 100 would get you one of the slightly harder languages, Russian, anything with Cyrillic, Greek, maybe. I don't know if they have Greek. And then 120 would score you the hardest languages, which are Korean, Chinese, uh, Farsi, Arabic. So interesting. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that tidbit because I didn't know like how they determined that, and I didn't realize. I knew the D Lab was important, but I didn't realize how important it was to like what language you sp- would learn and how that would affect your career. So the army was the right place. Everything was lining up, and then you headed off to boot camp and what was that experience like so i went out to fort chill out in uh, oklahoma and this was also around the time that everything was going around about stress cards and drill sergeants have to be nice and you can't cuss and you can't yell and the drill sergeants used to laugh and they're like welcome to summer camp hua (laughs) i struggle to say hua just because it's such a army 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 thing but i genuinely enjoyed boot camp. I loved the camaraderie and it was mildly frustrating because there were a lot of people there who either didn't think the rules applied to them or they were the kind of people who were like, I joined the military, but if somebody yelled at me, I'd get in their face. And then they try and then it just is miserable for everyone. The the team effort and the team cohesion, I think is so important. And not a a lot of people realize that. And at that time, I also had, we were still coming out of the 2008 recession. And so there were a lot of people who had joined because they just wanted to move out of their parents' house and couldn't afford it, or they wanted the free college. And so for them, this was a job to get them somewhere. Whereas for me, yes, it was to get out of my parents' house and to make money. But more importantly, I had always wanted to serve because I wanted to serve. And so, and I was also uh, one of the older people in the group because at 22, my nickname became mom because most of the people in my group were 17, 18. And so I'd wake up an hour before PT and I'd sit there with a line from my bunk braiding hair because that was something I knew how to do. And I just, it was a really good experience. And I think the kindest thing anyone said, uh, my squad leader looked at me one day and he was like, you know, I feel like you're the only one who's treating this like you might actually go to war. He's like, everybody else is here, you know, having fun doing what they're supposed to, but you're the only one acting like it actually might happen to you and that you might actually need to do all this stuff. And I was like, well, given my MOS, yes, (laughs) I can't really do my job unless I'm on the ground and outside the wire. But no, overall it was, it was hands down one of the hardest things I've ever done physically. By the end of boot camp, I had gained five pounds and dropped two dress sizes. So just the most muscular I've ever been in my life. And just it 
for me at the very end of that last, um, I, I think it's a 12 K or 16 K ruck March. And it was miserable. The weather that morning had started out beautiful and then the wind kicked up and it dropped 30 degrees in two hours and the wind was ripping and it was freezing and somebody had taken my gloves. So I didn't have any gloves and my poor knuckles were getting like chapped and borderline frostbitten. And I was too proud to tell anybody because I didn't want to get in trouble. And I got to the end of it and this unbelievable feeling of, I did that. I made it. I'm strong. I am powerful. I committed to something and actually did it. And so many people didn't think that I would. And wow, what a great feeling. And it really just felt like I was on top of the world. And like I said, I joined the military because I wanted to not feel helpless. And in that moment, I felt the opposite of helpless. I felt like freaking Wonder Woman. Yeah, sometimes the trainings, you're like, why am I doing this? But then you just explain like right there, like, why do you go through all this challenge and all these hard things? And then it's because at the end, you feel powerful. You feel like you could do anything. And also all that repetition and everything, it really matters. It seems very annoying at the time, but I deployed with the army. So I got to do all the repetition and all the stuff. And I was like, why am I doing this? And then I was deployed and I was like, oh, because now I know how to do it without thinking. And don't practice it until you get it perfect. Practice it till you can't get it wrong. Oh, I like that. Yeah, uh, that was one of my drill sergeants, which I appreciated. But, you know, the repetition, the boot camp was designed by psychologists to literally change how your brain works, to make you into somebody who is more self-disciplined. The slow is smooth, smooth is fast kind of stuff. And even today, I use that in my head when I'm getting really frazzled. I'll be like, no, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Let's do this. And it really does help with efficiency and accuracy and everything. Yeah, that's so true. And I think you just talked about like psychological change. And I think we talk about like transition so hard and why is it so hard? your brain does change. Your brain's still forming from 18 to 25. And, you know, that's when the military has, you, you know, even though you were 22, you're still in that 18 to 25 window. And now you operate based on what you learned from the military. And even when you get out, like you said, you pull back that thing and it makes transitioning hard because I don't think we think about how I didn't know that until one of my past podcast guests, I think it was with Crystal McFadden. She talked about like the psychology and I was like, oh my goodness, now I understand why it was so hard. And I wrote an article and it was like really resonated and people were like, I didn't know my brain was changing as I was joining the military. So that makes so much sense. Yeah. And I think that's part of why the transition out is so hard and also why the term failure to adapt is used for people who can't make it through basic is because they're literally failing to adapt to this new mindset and the way your brain is going to work. Um, and I had somewhat mild ADHD when I was a kid, but uh, while I was in basic, <laughs> again, with the pride not telling people things, um, we did an obstacle course where we had to take two by fours and build bridges over posts and carry everybody plus, I think, a ammo box across this thing. And you couldn't let anybody fall. 
well, we're on one of the higher ones. And the guy in front of me, sweet, sweet guy, but kind of unaware of everything. The the situational awareness was not yet there. It was like week two, I think, because this was the beginning of, yeah. Oh, it's been 10 years. Actually, it was today. (laughs) And um, he and I were straddling a two by four and he had another one on his shoulder and I leaned back to get something and he swung around and whacked me in the back of the head with the two by four. And I fell and was so dazed that I didn't catch myself and knocked my head when I landed and everybody immediately grabbed me, stood me up and they were like, anybody see, anybody see? No, no. Okay. This didn't happen. And I was so dizzy and so nauseated and very clearly had a concussion and didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to be held back. I loved the group that I was in. I didn't want to get held back. We had a holdover in our unit who was great. Bravo. Still remember her name. She was amazing. But I did not want to be Bravo. Um, I wanted to graduate on time. So we didn't tell anybody. Fast forward two days later, I am still very dizzy and still very not okay. And we're on another obstacle course. And I start coughing because for those of you who have never been to basic training, the first three weeks, you are just sick because you are mixing with so many other people and so many new germs that you were just sick. And if you're in Oklahoma, it's dusty all the time. And so I just started coughing and coughing and kind of like bent over. And one of the drill sergeants goes, Dolan, you okay? And I stood up straight and I'm like, yes, drill sergeant. And when I stood up straight, the blood rush happened and I just passed out, completely lost consciousness and hit my head on a rock. That one they saw and immediately sent me to medical and they did not realize I had had a concussion. They were like, she's dehydrated, that's it. Never did a CT and I got held on quarters for the weekend and then when I was finally released, I literally hopped in the back of a bread truck with two of the guys because at that point, I don't know if it's still this way, but you had to do battle buddy teams and it could either be one female and one female or one female and two males or vice versa. And we hop in the back of this bread truck and these two guys have like tears streaming down their face. Their faces are bright red and blotchy and they're going, this is your gas mask. This is how you put it on. This is how you clear it. You're going to go through the, and like, give me this whole rundown on gas chambers, which apparently I had missed the entire intro to. So I run in there, I throw on this gas mask. I do the whole thing. They have me take the gas mask off. They're having me sing the army song and say the soldier's creed. And I'm, you know, tears running down my face. And they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, it's not that different than opening your eyes under the ocean drill sergeant. I'm used to that. And it was just this quite crazy whirlwind of a week. But that concussion kind of came back to bite me in the butt because if you have mild ADHD and you suffer a traumatic brain injury like I did, such as you know, getting two concussions in 48 hours, it can actually exacerbate the symptoms severely. And so that was rough to deal with. But on the other hand, having that mental change from basic and that repetition and the self-control and the figuring out how to just focus and do stuff kind of counterbalanced it for a while. And so even when I got out and was struggling with the ADHD stuff, because of what I had learned in the army, I was still able to focus and do things that I needed to do. That has since kind of worn off, but it was really great for like the first five years after I got out. Yeah. 
that makes a lot of sense. And that's really interesting and crazy that, you know, I mean, obviously getting head, hit in the head by the two, two by four, I mean, that was bad, but not telling someone and still feeling not good and then having the second one happen and just how two kind of freak accidents came together and had such a huge impact on the rest of your life. Yeah. And again, I didn't know I had a concussion. I didn't know until I got out and I was going over my paperwork at the VA and they're like, why didn't you mention your concussions? And I'm like, my what? <laughs> cool way to learn that. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so it was in your military record, but no one told you directly? It was in my medical records, but I had never been told and never had any of the checkups or any of that kind of stuff or CT scan or any of that that would have addressed it in the moment, which medical care is a running theme in my army story, unfortunately. But um, I do think it's one that is starting to be addressed, but is also extremely important to be aware of. I think we are talking about like medical care, the VA, and just paying attention to all the different things that happen to you in the military. Because for a long time, it was take ibuprofen, you're fine. Change your socks, drink like, water. Yeah. Yes. It was never like, wait, let's figure out what's actually wrong. It's like, did you take ibuprofen? No. Then why are you in here? Go take ibuprofen. You're fine. Yeah. And yeah. not just ibuprofen. It's what they were giving out. We called Ranger candy because it's 800 milligrams per pill. And that's what you take. And it is an excessive amount of ibuprofen. And when I took one, a friend of mine looked at it and she was like, what is this? And I'm like, it's what I take for my knee three times a day. And she's like, oh my God, how are you alive? And I'm like, well, I've been doing it for three years, so I'm fine. Uh, I don't do that anymore. Thank goodness. But yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm glad things are starting to change. Yeah, it's really important. So basic was quite the adventure. Did you go to AIT? Okay. So what was that experience like? AIT was at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which for those of you who aren't aware is right north of the border of Mexico. Um, it's in the mountains and it's still very, very deserty, but not exactly what you'd picture for like, you know, Phoenix or Tucson. Um, or as my drill sergeant used to call it, Tucson. Um, ironic considering he was Hispanic, but anyway. <laughs> so when I got there, it was a really exciting time because for me, it was like, yes, this is the culmination of what I want to do. I'm so excited to be here with these people and doing this job and learning the training and all that kind of stuff. And we had the battalion commander come in and he was like, all right, who here is tired? Nobody raises their hand. And of course, we all were. We've all been traveling and, you know, haven't slept well and we've been up since four. And he looks around and he goes, liars. That's okay. We'll make you better liars. And I went, this is officially the coolest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and about a week later, I realized that I was living in a barracks with 140 people who had made the choice to manipulate other people for a living. And that may not be the best living environment for literally anyone. But no, the course was incredible and grueling. It's one of the longer AITs. We graduated the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, which was cool because then we got to spend Thanksgiving with our families. And then we shipped out that Friday. And so we got to Fort Huachuca at the beginning of November. And then we were going to go off for holiday block leave around mid-December. Running at almost a mile above sea level sucks. 
It is terrible. I do not recommend it, especially if you're coming from Oklahoma, which is flat and not terribly high up. So that was rough to begin with. All of us kind of stunk at running at the beginning just because of the altitude change. Then we had, because it's the desert, they don't have grass. They have AstroTurf. And so we're running on this terrible plasticky AstroTurf and we were doing shuttle sprints. And I run and I go to do the pivot and I feel something pop in my knee and I go, oh no. I had torn my MCL when I was in high school as a freshman. The army was fully aware. They had inspected it. They'd run me through an x-ray. They'd had doctors check it out. Everybody said I was fine. Everybody said it was cool. Prior to this, I was running an eight minute mile. So not stellar, but a lot better than a lot of people I know, uh, male or female for that matter. But I knew that that was not a good thing. But because I don't learn my lesson, I didn't tell anybody because I was going on holiday block leave the next day. And I was like, this will be fine. I'll just ice it when I get home. Everything will be great. I'll come back. Good as new. Plot twist. Uh, did not. Um, <laughs> and I went to go see a doctor and she said, it's runner's knee. It's just because you're not used to running on pavement. If you continue to run, the pain will go away. Spoiler alert. Did not. Terrible advice. Never listen to somebody who says that. I ended up being nickeled and dimed profiles my entire time at Huachuca. Like I said, we got there at the end of November and graduation was set for the first week of May. So it was a long school. For reference, I think the truck driver's course is like four or five weeks. Um, so it's it's a long school. And then I was going to go to DLI for 18 months to two years. I had been selected for Korean. I was really excited. I was the only female in a leadership position. So I was a squad leader and there were, I think, eight squad leaders, two platoon leaders, and then one, oh God, I'm going to forget the title of whoever was in charge. But out of all those, I was the only female and everybody else kind of got rotated out, you know, let other people experience stuff, but they were like, mm, she's got this. We're just going to leave her, <laughs> um, which was a good feeling, but I felt really confident in what I was doing. I was doing really well in the classes. I was getting really good at interrogations, really good at source ops. I loved doing source ops. It was really fun and it felt really natural. And so I was very excited to continue on this path. I just knew that eventually I was going to have to run and pass a PT test. And so after being nickel and dimed profiles all the way through April, they were like, all right, graduation is next week. You got to do it. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. Past pushups, past setups. And my roommate at the time, uh, because of what we did with human intelligence collection, we also trained alongside 09 Limas, who are people from other countries who have come here to be uh, translators. So a lot of the people we had were Afghan, uh, Egyptian, Iranian, Iraqi, uh, Moroccan, Jordanian. And they had all come over to a lot of them, especially the ones from Iraq and Afghanistan, had been interpreters for us over there and then came here and got their citizenship in exchange for being a translator for the army. And my roommate was this total bad A who was Iranian and a beast in PT. This girl, I think she ran like a seven minute mile or something like that. And like she, she was getting 300s on all of her PT tests, like total beast. And she was just so supportive and she was going to be my pacer. 
And so we're running, we're running, we're doing okay time-wise. We get to the three-quarter mile point and I'm like, all right, this is great. And just before we hit the mile, my knee gives out and I hit the deck. And I'm like, that was okay. It was just a fluke. My knee just gave out. It's fine. Got up, sprinted, fell. Got up, sprinted, fell. And I was hungry. I wanted it. And I just kept fighting. And my poor roommate is sitting there crying, going, come on, come on, you can do it. And a sergeant walked over and he went, look, I'm in pain just watching you and you're not going to make it. Stop. I'm going to send the bus or the van for you. You're going straight to sick call. I went, okay. I get to sick call. My knee is the size of a grapefruit. And they gave me crutches and they're like, we can't really do a whole lot for you today. Let's set you up an appointment for tomorrow. And keeping in mind that throughout this entire five month span, I've been seeing the same PA who diagnosed me with runner's knee because she's the one who has to keep renewing my profile and has seen that I have not really improved and continued to call it runner's knee and give me profiles. So this time she was actually out and I had to go see uh, Major Mitchell, who was a different PA. And I remember his name because he was very kind to me. And he looked at my history and he looked at my knee and he goes, this isn't runner's knee. This is an MCL sprain, a bad one. And I'm pretty sure you've also done some damage to your ACL and meniscus. I don't know that you're going to be able to get this up and running in PT within six months, which is the cutoff for recovering and moving on to DLI. He's like, you need to prepare yourself that you may not stay in the military. And that just devastated me because I was, that was on a Friday and I was supposed to graduate or no, I think that was on Tuesday and I was supposed to graduate on Friday or something. It, it was within a week of graduation and I had passed the course. I'd made it, I'd done really well. I was very excited. And then for it to just disappear out of my fingers like smoke. And I was like, well, if I do heal up, you know, I might not get Korean again. You know, maybe I'll get Chinese. Maybe I'll get lucky and get Russian. Everybody's talking about, cause this was 2014. So Crimea was big. And it was just, it was a hard blow. And so I sat back and was like, okay, I'm going to go to physical therapy. I'm going to try and do my best to heal up and run and be awesome. And around that time, I was like, well, I don't have to worry about missing school anymore. I've had a cough for, you know, months at this point. Maybe I should go see a doctor now that I don't have to worry about getting to graduation on time. And I got diagnosed with everything from a 24-hour bug, a kidney infection, a altitude sickness accused of malingering. Maybe it was allergies. And weeks later, I had ended up in an ER, a civilian ER, because I passed out. And the civilian ER assumed that I was just trying to get on quarters. And they're like, you just have a 24-hour bug. Take this note. Go to sick call. They'll give you quarters. And I'm like, all right, cool. And it isn't until this point that I've realized that in the six doctor's appointments I've had for this cough, nobody once has used a stethoscope on me. And we get to sick call and I am so dizzy, I can barely sit up. And so my battle buddy goes up to the registrar and was like, hey, that's not the right term, but you know what I mean? The person sitting at the desk and was like, can she lay down in the back? She is going to fall over and get hurt. And so they put me in the back in a dark room and I laid back there for probably three and a half hours because sick call, that that was a normal wait for sick call. And 
I'm going to forget his name. It was Mr. Vasquez, I think, walked by, heard me coughing and poked his head in. And he was civilian. So he was he was still a PA, but he was a civilian and didn't quite cop to the same views that some of the army uh, PAs did. And he goes, how long have you had that cough? And I said, nah, two to three months. And he goes, has anybody listened to your chest? And I go, no, funny you ask. No, they haven't. He listens to my chest and he goes, you need an x-ray now. Call your sergeant, get them, get a van over here. You're going to the hospital right now. And I did. My entire left lung was full of fluid and my right was starting to fill up. I had full-blown pneumonia and it, nobody had listened to my chest. Nobody heard it. And so I go back with a quarter slip that says I need to be on quarters for two weeks, which is unheard of in military doctor land. And one of the sergeants who did not like me terribly well went, this is B BS. Who gets quarters for two weeks? It can't be that bad. And I'm like, according to this guy, I almost died, but okay. <laughs> sure. Sure. It's not that bad. It's, it's fine. Um, so I went back to Mr. Vasquez, Vasquez, Velasquez, something like that. And I was like, she doesn't want me to be on quarters for two weeks. She said 48 hours max. And he goes, okay, you will be here every two days and I will give you your quarters. Also, I'm giving you a new profile. My profile said I could not stand or sit. I had to be, I was not allowed to walk. I was not allowed to run. I was not allowed to bend over. I had the deadest dead man's profile I have ever seen in my life. And it was because he did not want me to get hurt and, you know, thank gosh for it. But as I started to heal up a little bit, I got into physical therapy. I started to rehabilitate my knee. The pneumonia did start to resolve itself. Um, I really appreciate all the med holds I had around me because they were the ones who would keep an eye on me when we were in formation and be like, hey, Dolan, you're getting a little woozy. Sit down. Here's your inhaler. And just were really incredibly supportive. And, you know, when I was on quarters, would bring me soup, make sure I was eating because I couldn't make it down to the chow hall. And so that was easily the worst part of my military career, my very, very short military career. But also, I think the most impactful because as frustrating as it was to have the sergeants, you know, not believe me and think that I was making it up and think that I was trying to avoid work, the care provided by the sergeants who did care, the care provided by my fellow TRADOC soldiers. And then there was a chaplain who I had gone to Caruso multiple times because she was my contact and the only person I was allowed to talk to to request things, which was really frustrating. But um, I went to her and I was like, look, I am getting extremely depressed. I need to talk to somebody. I really want to talk to a chaplain because while all of this is going on, my knee is screwed up. My, I can't breathe. I'm reliant on an inhaler. I'm still getting migraines and I don't know why. Plot twist, it was the concussions. And during this period, my best guy friend has had a freak heart attack at 29 and is now a vegetable. My cousin, who I loved dearly, family friend, basically a cousin, had passed away very abruptly from glioblastoma. And a childhood friend of mine had also passed away from a drunk driver. All of this happening all at once, 
And my sister was going through a divorce, which was also very traumatic for me because I had been very close to my brother-in-law and was horrified that that had happened the way it did. And so all of this really built up and I was like, I need to talk to a chaplain, I need to talk to a chaplain. And it wasn't until I went and waited for the van one day and the chaplain walked by and I said, sir, when are you going to have an opening? And he said, what do you mean? I said, I've asked Sergeant Caruso five times to get me an appointment with you. And she keeps saying you're not available. And he goes, I am always available. I will request a meeting with you. And he did. And after that, he requested that I be on chapel duty every day from eight to four. And chapel duty was spending an hour and a half cleaning and setting up the chapel. And the rest of the time was spent watching movies from Redbox and eating all of the snacks I wanted and just taking naps and taking care of my mental health because it was in a pretty bad area. But that whole situation, I, I'm trying to think of how I want to phrase this. I joined the army because I didn't want to be helpless. And in a lot of ways, I ended up getting out much more physically helpless than I had been when I started, which was tough. But now looking back 10 years later, joining got me out of my hometown, getting out brought me back to my hometown, which at the time seemed terrible, but it wasn't because I got home and I went to a Christmas party with my parents, which was with the Admiral in charge of JIADF South, JIADF being Joint Interagency Task Force. They're the ones who chased down drug dealers in South America and the Gulf. And it was really cool. And I got to talk to them and they actually had an executive assistant position open up that I took. And because I had a TSSCI, I was able to work in the SCIF, which was amazing. So what seemed like such a terrible thing actually ended up being good work-wise. And I was making like double what I made as a soldier. <laughs> and then I also because I had had a med board um, and it wasn't just failure to thrive or fa failure to adapt. It was no, we are going to, I was not a full medical retirement uh, because I didn't qualify for 40% by army standards, but I did get a med board, which means army's got a great, you break it, you bought it policy. I got hundred percent of the GI bill. For those of you who aren't clear on army versus VA army disability looks at specifically what injuries don't allow you to continue serving and deploying in the army. VA disability looks at anything that has negatively affected you medically. So for the army, they're looking for zero to 30 for med board, 40 and up for retirement. For the VA, you can be zero to 100 and that just determines how much you get paid. And then if you get both medically retired and VA, whichever one is higher, that's the one you get. And which is good for you because the VA is untaxed. So I ended up going through that whole process and was pretty satisfied with what they come up with for compensation wise. Um, and then I worked at Jayada for a year. During that time, made friends with uh, one of the guys who worked there who was FBI, who got me involved with the FBI internship program in D.C., I ended up going to George Mason University. I graduated in two and a half years, uh, summa cum laude, which was ridiculous considering I'd flunked out of college twice before joining the army. Um, and it was paid for. I got to work in the military services office there and I realized I'm already stepping into the transition part before you asked the question. <laughs> no, 
No, you're fine. I'm loving hearing your story. You don't need to stop. I don't have to ask the questions. You're doing great on your own. I'm just listening. It's been really, it's really good. And I love that you stopped and talked about like VA disability and, and medical retirement through a med board. And yeah, I mean, it, it flows really well. And so, and I love hearing how you were like in a crummy situation. You're like, I got, cause I was going to, my question was going to be like, what was it like to get out of the military? Like, and you were so excited to go to D lab and to learn Korean and then you know, everything got taken away, but you answered it because you went to the Christmas party, you got the job. So, so you're doing fine. You don't need my help. So, uh, uh, while I was at George Mason, actually, though, I worked in the military services office. So I got to do a lot of stuff with people using the GI bill, children of service members who were using the GI bill, bill, people who had the Gunny Fry scholarship, uh, which Gunny Fry is, essentially the GI Bill. It's the same thing. It pays out the same. It has, you know, the 36 months, you get the stipend at the same level. Everything about it is identical to the GI Bill. What makes it the Gunny Fry is that it is given to the surviving family members of somebody who died in combat or in service. Back in March, so I currently live near Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And back in March, there was a horrific Black Hawk crash. Two Black Hawks uh, collided midair, no survivors. And one of the pilots was an extremely close friend of ours. Um, And going through that, we were, I believe, the second call after she called his parents was us and asking my husband to come over. And we... That day I was like, so you're our wife now. And she was, she kind of laughed at it at the time, but that's really become true. Like we are essentially a blended family at this point. It's wonderful. But knowing what I learned from the military services office at George Mason has been incredibly useful with providing information to people like her and letting her know that if she wants to go to college, it's hundred percent paid for. If any of the three kids want to go to college. It is 100% paid for. And, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of army healthcare with good reason, but I have seen a lot of the good that has come from the changes they have started to make and through the VA. And I know the VA gets a terrible rap and some of it is earned, but I have seen huge improvements in recent years. And I've actually managed to stay involved. Um, I met my husband when I was going to George Mason, and I had every intention of staying in uh, the D.C. area and working for the FBI. And a cute army boy was really wonderful, and I decided to marry him (laughs) and follow him to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, which uh, there's not a lot, a whole lot of international relations in Clarksville, Tennessee, uh, which is my my degree was in global affairs with a focus in human security, primarily focusing in African conflict circa 1960 to present day, which is oddly niche if you are not planning on, you know, working with people who work in Africa. (laughs) But I did uh, get involved with a large company in Nashville, Phillips, they make the toothbrushes. They used to make the light bulbs. That's not them anymore. Uh, they make CTs, x-rays, patient monitoring systems, digital imaging. I'm still an executive assistant, which I love. It works very well with my ADHD. Um, 
But with working with a company that large, there is a lot of cool stuff that you can do. And one of those things was helping stand up the Veterans and Family Coalition. This is an employee resource group specifically for people who have either served in the military or were family members within the military. So spouses, dependents, that kind of stuff. If you're not military affiliated, you are actually absolutely welcome to join. But what we wanted was a way to connect and provide that support and that camaraderie that a lot of people are missing when they get out of the military. We do a lot of the job fairs at Fort Campbell. Uh, Our sister sectors in Atlanta and Amherst and Bothell, Washington, have all kind of done stuff with local uh, military bases. And we've done a lot of stuff with hiring where um, we've managed to get the algorithm to recognize military training and experience as level with college which I think is so incredibly important because you'll have people come out of the military who may not have a college degree, but they spent 20 years working in supply chain or they spent, you know, 15 years as a people leader. And those skills are, you can't learn a lot of what they know in a classroom. We've had plenty of people who've come in from the military after five years in the military who are far advanced beyond the college grads. And it's just because you have that hands-on experience and that leadership and the understanding of the importance of teamwork and integrity and honor and all those kinds of things. So that's been a really cool opportunity for me to get really involved. And we've done things like the, um, we've done runs for Veterans Day. We've done big events. We do panels. Uh, I hosted a panel where we brought in three uh, military small or veteran small business owners and large business owners and just really done a lot of cool stuff around, you know, promotion of veterans affairs, promotions of, uh, you know, former service members within our company, and also providing support to people when they get out with disability stuff. Because a lot of people, it's pride, they don't want to. I get that. It's there for a reason. You signed up, you served, you may not be functioning as well as you did before you joined, apply to the VA. The worst they can say is no, but that is also one of my biggest pieces of advice to any of my friends when they even start to hint that they might be wanting to get out. Document, document, document. Don't be a hero. Don't be a tough guy. If it hurts, say it hurts. Tell them exactly how much it hurts. Don't try to overblow things because they've got a BS detector that'll, you know, blow most humanters out of the water, but get that stuff documented now so that you are taken care of later. Because I have dealt with the severe exacerbation of my ADHD stuff to the point where there was a period of time where I struggled to stay employed and was very much looking at getting fired because of how many things I had forgotten and my inability to focus. And the VA is aware of that and can work with that and can document that as, hey, this is a sign of it worsening or not improving, which is also just as important. Yeah. I mean, I did an episode 247 about my process of getting enrolled in VA healthcare and getting my disability claim done because I think it's so important that we talk about it, that we make sure that we take care of ourselves and that we realize that veterans advocated you know, they advocated during World War II for the VA to be created and 
They just advocated again for the PACT Act for all the disabilities that are related to being in Iraq and Afghanistan. So veterans advocated for you to get taken care of. So it's not being selfish. It's something that, you know, veterans taking care of veterans, which is in your story. You're always taking care of people. You're starting programs. You're making sure that people are taken care of. And that's what is happening on the VA side too. And you also mentioned like the VA noticed that your ADHD was like, you know, going out of, and they could connect it to your military service. There's like so many things that happen to you that you might not make the connection that it's military related. And so if you're going to the VA, they see, you know, thousands, millions of veterans. And so they can find trends, they can find things and all that stuff is so important. So even if you're just doing your yearly appointment at the VA, it's so important to do that appointment so that you can talk to a doctor who sees veterans and might be able to see something that is a challenge for you. So I've really enjoyed this interview, but we're almost out of time. And so I want to ask you my final question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? Serious advice is go for it, but be willing to listen to your body and advocate because the amount of women I saw get broken hips because they decided to keep pushing. It's better to be seen as wimping out for one day than to be injured for years. Um, absolutely go for it, but just know your body and listen to it. And my less serious word of advice is be prepared for every single man you talk to in the future. When you bring up your military career to go, you know, I was going to join the military, but every time I'm like, you don't have to explain why I don't care. (laughs) I, I don't think less of you because you weren't in, but it's, it cracks me up every time. That's funny. That is that is true. That is kind of something that's a common theme that you hear. But I love your advice about advocating for yourself. And I think in your story, you ended up with sometimes with really good doctors and really bad doctors. So like, it's okay to get a second opinion. It's a lot harder in the military, but uh, reach out to like, I have a mentorship group. So if you're going through something and you're not getting the right help, you can reach out to us as women veterans and we can help get you the resources that you need because we know about other ways to work around the military system. Because I mean, just like when you were trying to talk to a chaplain, Cohen Veterans Network allows people to talk to counselors for free, even when you're on active duty. But if you don't know that resource is there, or if you don't know, you can go to a chaplain and you don't have to get permission from your supervisor. And it really, you know, messes everything up. And so there's sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So it's really important to rely on women veterans. We're here to help you. And so thank you so much for your time, for sharing your story. I really appreciate it.